You are listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. I'm going to talk about the F word this morning. And this F word is the biggest F word to me in my life, failure. Anybody else like failure? Maybe actively seek it out? Not really seeing any hands go up. Failure makes us uncomfortable. It makes us question our worth and our identity. But before I get into it, let's pray. Father God, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be up here today. I'm grateful. Um, Let my words reflect you and your vision for your people, Lord. Make yourself more and me less. In Jesus' name. So, I am a recovering perfectionist. Anyone else? I say that in jest, but in all honesty, it's actually been a relatively challenging part of my life. I mean, look at these notes, right? It means that my life has been characterized by really high expectations and achievement. And that's great when it comes to outcomes and goals. It's not so great when it comes to relationships and parenthood, hence the recovering part. I can't put those expectations on other people and expect them to meet them. I'm going to be disappointed and the other person's going to be crushed. So this has led to a really unhealthy fear of failure. I don't know what it means for me if I fail. What happens to my identity if I fail? Am I good enough? And by the way, that good part is an arbitrary judgment. So it's caused me to avoid risk. What happens if I fail? I can't fail. So I just don't do things. And that's okay when it's stuff that I don't want to do, right? I might be missing out on something I wanted to do, but it's dangerous and disobedient when it's something I know I'm supposed to do and I'm avoiding it because I don't want to fail. So even though I've spent the better part of my lifetime trying to avoid failure, I still feel like a failure all the time. I don't see my mistakes. I see that I am a failure. And this is especially poignant in my motherhood. So my daughter is five and three quarters, and if you know her, you know that three quarters part's actually very important to her. (laughs) You laugh because it's a big thing. Um, She is at the age where she's old enough to catch me in my mistakes and call me out on them. Fortunately, she is abundantly gracious and merciful, and I pray that she stays that way, especially through the teenage years. But for now, she's witty and charming and vibrant and tender, and I'm not. And so my sharp edges often poke her soft ones. And then I'm left feeling guilty and ashamed and questioning my worth as a mother. And there's nothing I can do to strive or achieve motherhood. And the perfectionist in me wants her childhood to be perfect. I'm never going to meet that expectation. I am going to fail. I feel the weight of that so heavy, in such a different way than I do in other relationships in my marriage. The way I see it, Caleb came to me with baggage, but with my daughter, I'm the one packing the bags. So if something happens and I mess up, it's my fault, right? Like that's not, I mean, yeah, sure, Caleb's there, but really it's me. (laughs) I mean, really, that's the thing. But I'm not even, I'm looking at my strength and how to raise her in my strength. I'm not looking at the right thing. But if it wasn't motherhood, it'd be something else. It's already been something else. 
So everywhere, every stage of our life has a primary responsibility. For me, it's motherhood. For you, it might be parenthood. It might be being a spouse or a friend or a seeker or a student, an employer, whatever. But I'm guessing that just like me, you hear that voice telling you, you could have done better. You should have done better. We all feel uncomfortable with failure. Remember how many hands were up in the beginning? For those of you who can't see, no one had their hand up. We don't like it. It makes us question our abilities and trust ourselves less. But maybe that's the point. Maybe God uses failure as a tool to bring us to the end of trust in ourselves and the beginning of trust in him. Maybe our creator knows what we need so that we don't become proud in our own eyes. Maybe just as sin is our opportunity to see our need for salvation, failure is our opportunity to see that we cannot do this on our own. Now, if you've failed, don't worry, you're in good company. There is no shortage of examples in the Bible from Adam and Eve to Abraham to David to Peter. But here's someone you don't usually think of in that list, Moses. Moses is a pretty undisputed good guy, right? He's considered one of the greatest teachers and prophets. He's mentioned in the Bible over 800 times. He's mentioned in the New Testament over 80 times. He's not who we associate with biblical shortcomings. In Numbers, Numbers 12 actually, excuse me, Numbers 3.12 actually refers to him as a very humble man, the most humble of anyone on earth. But how did he get that way? It didn't happen without failure. So we're going to see um, a little bit of his journey, and we're going to turn to Exodus 2. But before we get there, um, I want to clarify. So there are lots of ways to fail. I'm sure that we've all recognized that. And not all of them are associated with, directly with our work with God. Um, but in these examples, we're going to look at two ways that Moses failed. The first one being um, stepping out and trying to accomplish something without inviting God into it. And the second one being you're too afraid to risk even though God has given you a command. Okay, so um, just as a caveat, I get very excited when I read the Bible. So if I start going a little bit fast, pardon me, um, I'm going to get us caught up. <clears throat> so we're going to join Moses. It's going to be, I said, like I said, Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. At this point, the Israelites have been in Egypt for a long time. <clears throat> a Pharaoh has come into power who doesn't know Joseph and the, and the past of the Israelites. So um, he's concerned about how numerous they are, and he's concerned about them overpowering him. So he has enslaved them. He has made a rule that the midwives need to kill any newborn sons, and Moses is born into this time. Moses' mother recognizes that he's a special child. Now, I'm going to say as a mother, I think all of us would think that when our child was born, but he, um, she hides Moses for a couple of months, and when she can't hide him any longer, she um, builds a papyrus basket, which interestingly enough, um, this word that they use in the Hebrew actually is the same as Noah's Ark, so it's kind of like she built a little ark for him, and she um, placed him in, on the bank of the Nile. Moses' sister Miriam um, stayed with him to see what would happen. Eventually, Pharaoh's daughter comes comes down to the Nile to bathe, and she sees the basket. She sends someone over to get it. She sees the child takes pity on him. And in an interesting turn of events, um, Miriam suggests that Moses' own mother would be his wet nurse. 
So Moses stays with his mother until he's weaned. And just to clarify, for them, weaning meant something a little bit different than it does for us today. And it also would have happened later, so probably up to five or even beyond. So it's really early childhood that he would have been with his mother, most likely. Um, So that means that he would have been in early childhood in a Hebrew home, learning Hebrew traditions and worshiping the God of Israel. That's an important point to remember. Once he was weaned, then he's going to go spend time with Pharaoh, and he's going to be raised in the Egyptian court. He's going to learn literature and art and warfare and rhetoric. So that was something prized by the Egyptians, so he would have learned how to speak. That's going to be important later. Okay, so let's jump in. Um, Like I said, verse 11, I'm going to be reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible, um, and it'll be up on the screen for you. Years later, now this years later is 40 years, so Moses is about 40 years old at this point. Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw the Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking around, all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, what are you, why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you a leader and a judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. So let's pause. At this point in Moses' life, and if we look in Acts, um, it actually tells us that Moses at this point knew that he was going to be used as a deliverance for Israel. So he expected that when he stepped out like this, that they would understand why he did it. But in his zealousness, he stepped out without God trying to do something for him and murdered a man. It didn't exactly happen the way he hoped it would. He probably felt like a failure when he was fleeing for his life. And as we learn more, um, we'll find out a little bit more about what's going on. Um, But I want to draw an interesting parallel. So Moses needed to come out of the high places into the humble ones, just like Jesus did. Moses was rejected by his people, even though he forsook his own status and royalty, just like Jesus did. But Moses needed it. He was too big for God to use at that point. Remember, he became a very humble man. But this doesn't sound like very humble actions. Jesus didn't. So we're going to catch up with Moses. We're going to move on to um, chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 6. But important to note, about 40 years has passed in this time. And in that time, Moses has wandered in the desert. He has become a shepherd. So to the Egyptians, that was kind of the lowest of the low. So he went from the highest position in the land to the lowest position in the land. Again, probably didn't feel great about that. And he is not even shepherding his own flock. He's shepherding his father-in-law's flock. So again, probably doesn't feel real great. So when we meet him, when we get to chapter six, excuse me, verse six, he is going to have already seen the burning bush. He's going to recognize that the bush is not burning up. He's going to come to it and um, God's going to speak to him. So we're going to start in verse six. Then he continued, this is God speaking, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors, and I know about their sufferings. 
I have come down to rescue from them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. This is a command. This is not a request or a suggestion. And God is saying that he has seen and he will do. So at this point, Moses is supposed to be a tool. It's not his power. Let's see what Moses says. But Moses asked, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Isn't that so like us? When we're not trusting God for the risk, we ask questions like, who am I? Instead of questions like, who is God? So let's continue on. And God answers, he answered, I will certainly be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. So God's reassuring him. He's bringing the focus back onto himself. Moses says, this isn't about you. This is about me. Then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? Again, Moses is not sure. He doesn't believe that this, he's the right person for this job. They're not going to believe me. God says, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you to me. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. He's reminding Moses, hey, I'm powerful. I am God. And Moses says, we're going to catch up with him in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Now, again, in the interim, God gives Moses some very specific instructions. He's telling Moses exactly what he needs to do. He's not leaving anything up to chance. God is giving him what he needs. Wouldn't it be nice if we had that same kind of clarity? Well, we do in Jesus Christ. So here we are in verse 1. Um, then Moses answered. This is after God has given them very specific instructions and reminded him who God is. Then Moses answered. What if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say, the Lord did not appear to you? Okay. Do you remember back in chapter 2, about verse 14, one of his brothers said to you, who are you? Who are you? Questioning Moses' identity. Moses is still stuck in that failure from 40 years ago. His identity is failure. God has come to him. He's tried to renew it. And Moses says, no, no, I've disqualified myself. I'm not looking at your qualifications. I am not worthy. How often do we do that? How often are we stuck in our failure from however long ago, even though God has tried to renew us, even though he showed us his faithfulness, even though he showed us his power? So now God's going to go on and give Moses three miracles. He's going to show him two and give him a third option should the people not believe him. God is patiently working through this with Moses. He's not saying, you know what, never mind, you're right. He's saying, okay, look, it's me, it's me, it's me. Come back to me. Okay, we're going to catch up with him in verse 10. But Moses replied to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent either in the past or recently or since you have been speaking to your servant because I am slow and hesitant in speech. Now, what would Moses have been trained in? Rhetoric. So he should have been able to speak. He would have had the skills necessary to do this. Okay, Yahweh said to him, Who made the human mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now go. 
I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. God is saying to him, forget about you. I'm going to give you words. You don't even have to come up with what you have to say. I am going to do it. I will do it for you. Now, what does Moses say? Moses said, please, Lord, send someone else. This is his fifth objection. Okay. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, isn't Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and also he is on his way to meet you. He will rejoice when he sees you. You will speak with him and tell him what to say. I will help you both. I will help both you and him to speak and will teach you both what to do. He will speak to the people for you. He will be your spokesman, and you will serve as God to him. Okay. On the surface, this doesn't look like a big compromise. But Moses had been prepared for this work. God had spent 80 years preparing Moses for this job, not Aaron. And there will be consequences for this compromise. How often do we think we have a better plan and we ask God for these compromises and we don't see the outcome? So we're going to quickly turn to Exodus 32 and we're going to see one of these compromises, one of these consequences of this compromise. Now, here at this point, the Israelites have been delivered out of Egypt. They have seen miracles. They've been given promises. They've been given warnings. They have agreed to obey the Lord. And let's see what, what happens. So we're in verse 1, chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, come, Make us a God who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up from Egypt, the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. It's really easy for us to look at that and say, well, that's obvious. God just did all these miracles. He's done all these things. He's appeared to you. How could you turn? But let's have some context. For this period of time, Moses was the sole contact that the Israelites had with God. At this point, he's on a mountain. He's been on the mountain for 40 days. They don't know what's happened to him. We have the privilege of a personal relationship with Jesus. We have the privilege of an intercessor. We have the privilege of the Holy Spirit to direct us. But their relationship was different. That's one of the reasons why they needed the priesthood and the prophets. So to them, Moses has been gone for 40 days. Their contact with God's been gone. What can they do? So in their own strength, they need to do something. So let's continue. Chapter, uh, verse 2. Then Aaron replied to them, take off the gold rings that are on your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from their hands, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Then he made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early the next morning, they arose, order, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink, then got up to play. This is a pretty big deal. They just were like, hey, I don't know where God is, so let's go ahead and make our own. When Moses is up on the mountain, God says to him, hey, something's going on down there. You better get down there. Moses gets down there and sees what's happening. And this isn't going to be up on the screen, but you'll see in verse 21, then Moses asked Aaron, what did these people do to you that you have led them into such a grave sin? Moses is like, hey, man, I left you in charge. How could you let this happen? They must have done something pretty terrible for you to go this far. And Aaron says, 
Don't be enraged, my lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know that the people are intent on evil. They said to me, make us a God who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I said to them, whoever has gold, take it off. And they, and they gave it to me. When I threw it into the fire, a calf came out. That's lucky. Lucky that that happened. He's taking all the responsibility and all the blame and he's putting it somewhere else. Not me. I didn't do it. This calf just came out. How can you blame me? I mean, that's pretty incredible. So now we're going to go to verse, uh, chapter 32, verse 30. We're going to see what Moses does. Moses recognizes this. A couple of things happen. Um, he tries to help the people correct their behavior. And then he says, the following day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I will be able to atone for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a grave sin. They have made a God of gold for themselves. Now, if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, please erase me from the book you have written. So Aaron took all responsibility off of himself. Moses took all responsibility onto himself, even though he wasn't there. That seems like a pretty big change from where he was originally. He's becoming a very humble man. And as we follow this story, we see there's all kinds of things that happen. And if you know the story of the Israelites and the Exodus and, and what's happened, it ends up that Moses actually doesn't even get to go into the promised land. A lot of things have happened, a lot of grumbling, a lot of disobedience, and the Israelites have to wander for 40 years. Um, there are a lot of consequences. Not all of them are directly related to Aaron, but there's others like Aaron and Miriam grumbling later in numbers. Um, a lot of things happen as a result. Um, Mo would Moses have been able to handle it had he not spent those 40 years in the desert waiting for God to be ready? Would he have been too big for God to use? We don't know. But we can assume that those 40 years were an important part of his development so that he could be used by God. While he used that time to disqualify himself and to not trust that his brothers would accept him. He was afraid that they would reject him yet again. And they do. But here's the thing. Instead of running off, he runs to God. He runs to God and takes responsibility over and over and over again. Okay, so you know this, right? Did you think Moses was a failure? Before we talked about this, would that have been something that crossed your mind? Probably not. You probably wouldn't have gone, you know what, Moses, that guy, let's throw him out. Now that you know this, does that change your opinion? Again, probably not. Why is it that when we fail, we label ourselves as failures, but when other people fail, we're like, oh yeah, that you know, was a mistake, but it's okay, they're okay. I think that part of the reason we're so afraid of failure is because we're afraid that something catastrophic is going to happen, something permanent. And it might. Moses did not move forward in his journey the way he thought he would, probably the way he planned he would. And there were consequences. But here's the thing. The people of Israel were still delivered. They were still redeemed. There is nothing that we can do to thwart God's will. If we are willing, he will use us. And if we think that something that we do is irreparable and irredeemable, we've made ourselves big and God small. History doesn't hinge on one person alone unless that person is Christ the King. God can use whatever it is that we've done. God can do it because he is God. Just like for Moses, it was never about Moses in the first place. It was always going to be in God's strength. God did the miracles through Moses. 
So he can use us, even if we failed in the past, even if we're failing right now. We're not rejected. We're redeemed. He is good. We are there with him on this journey, and he's working everything together for our good and his glory. Okay, so great. Failure isn't fatal. We can fail. God wants to be with us in it. But now what? What about in the midst of failure? What do we do? How do we fail well? I know for me, I'm like, okay, that's cool. Fine, but I'm still failing. It still sucks right now in this moment. So that's where the three R's come in. Repent, repel, repeat. The first one, repent. Just like Moses went to the source of life, we have to go to the source of life the second we recognize that we have failed. The second we recognize that we have sinned or made a mistake. And once we're there, we need to lay it down, pretend the floor is lava, and not pick it up again. We can't keep trying to pay for our own sins. That's not our job. And once we've laid it down, we need to accept his mercy. He has accepted us. We can trust it. And then we submit to his will, just like Moses submitted to his will, and we move forward. The way forward may seem scary. It may not be the way we want to go. It may be dark. But if we're following Jesus, he will illuminate the darkness. He's trustworthy. Step number two, we repel. Now, it's important to not get these two steps out of order. We can't repel in our own strength. We need to have repented first to have the strength of the Savior. But once we've done that, once we've repented, we need to repel the enemy's attacks. He knows the potential that shame and guilt has to absolutely wreck us. And he wants us shackled in those chains. He wants us in that bondage. Because just like Moses, we are not useful to God when we believe we are disqualified. The enemy is going to try to isolate us. He's going to try to convince us that we're not worthy, that our identity is failure, not redeemed. But he is the father of lies, and shame does not come from the father of truth. Get behind me, Satan, and then we need to get behind Jesus. That's where we're safe. Finally, repeat. His welcome doesn't wear out. And as much as we would like to think that this is the last time we're going to fail, and as much as we try to make it the last time we fail, it's not. And he's not surprised. He's not over there going, oh, let me just check this off. Oh, nope, too many times. You did it three times, you're out. This isn't baseball. He is with us consistently and constantly. He is not hoping that we're going to slip up so he can smite us. That's not the God of love. He doesn't reject us even when the world has. He waits for us to invite him in. You see, Failure is an invitation, it is not an identity. Just because we want to take it on as one doesn't change. He's waiting for us to invite him in so he can love us, so he can teach us, so he can redeem us. That's his will for our lives. And we can trust him to do it. So, as the band comes back up, I want to ask you a really important question. How many of you, you don't have to answer it, how many of you feel like you're failing? How many of you feel like a failure? It is not an identity. It is an invitation. 
It is God's tool to remind you that you need him, you need him, you need him. I need him. And you don't have to stay there. You don't have to do this alone. Not only do you have a community of believers around you to edify you, to encourage you, to show you, to point you to God, you have a loving heavenly father who is waiting for you to notice him who is waiting for you to invite him into your mess, into your failure. He is waiting for you to ask him, am I worthy? So he can say, you have been washed in my blood, and you are. He's faithful. He's trustworthy. He's good. And even if you've let everyone else down, even if you've let yourself down, He will not let you down. So, today, you may fail. But instead of berating yourself, say, oh, great, this is God giving me an invitation. It may not be as easy as that. But try to bring him in the next time you're failing. And remember, the three R's, repent, repel, repeat. Let's pray. Father God, again, I thank you for this opportunity I know that in my life, failure has been a normal theme. Make me willing to risk, Lord, if it means risking for you. Make me willing to trust you, enough to trust that you will be there in the storm and you will be there in the calm, Lord. Make yourself known, make your presence known, and be the abundantly loving God you already are to us. Thank you for giving us the opportunity every day to learn more about you. And thank you that your welcome never wears thin. In Jesus' name, amen. You are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.